Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 bienvenido de nueva a Equipping You podcast. This is Temperado Cinco Episodio Trace, proving once again that I am fluent in Spanish. It proves nothing of the sort. <laughs> Not even close. We're, we're coming to you today from, well, mostly Colorado Springs, once again, home of schizophrenic weather, 74 degrees on Saturday. And uh, yesterday morning when I took my walk, it was 14 degrees and snowing. This morning it was six degrees and I had to scoop snow off of my driveway. But hey, it's putting out the wildfires in the West and we're happy for that. I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, the Director of Multiplication in Eastern PA. And with us also is Caitlin, the Laugh Track Guyberson, who has herself muted right now so that she is not going to be able to laugh at my jokes so that you hear it. I got to keep you humble somehow, Terry. That's yeah, my job. <laughs> it, it is. It is. So uh, a lot of people seem to uh, be applying for that job of keeping me humble. Nonetheless. Uh, I call dibs. Okay. Uh, today we're going to be talking to a former lead pastor of Southeast Christian Church in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Bob Russell. And uh, Bob wrote a book several years ago that I read and really appreciated called When God Builds a Church. And then uh, he just wrote a new book called After 50 Years of Ministry, Seven Things I Do Differently and Seven Things I Do the Same. Uh, Alan, I don't know about you, but I love books like that that really come out of a person's life and ministry experience. You know they've lived what they're writing about. Absolutely. I know you and I kind of brainstormed guests have on a podcast. And when you told me about that book and Bob Russell, I was like, that's a no brainer. I cannot wait uh, to hear what Bob has to say with us today. Yeah. So uh, began pastoring that church when it only had about 120 people in it, pastored it until it had like 18,000 people in it. But uh, what he says applies to you, whether you're pastor of a large church, mid-sized church, or small church. It's just nitty-gritty practical stuff. So grab yourself a kangaroo coffee. We have kangaroo coffee in Colorado Springs. I've never had any, but I heard if you drink a cup, it'll make you a little jumpy. Sit back. <laughs> relax. Here we go. Hey, Equipping You friends, it's Caitlin here, and I want to tell you about something super special that we have launched here at Equipping You that's just for you, and we think you're really going to love it. If you're an avid Equipping You listener, an Equipping You live attender, or both, you need to join our Facebook group called Equipping You Community. We love that on the podcast and at Equipping You Live, we get to empower you in your ministries. But we believe that for you to really see the true transformation of your leadership that you want, applying what you learn in community is key. So pause this episode right now and head over to facebook.com slash groups 
slash equipping you community. Or you can go to equippingyou.com and scroll all the way to the bottom and click on equipping you community. We can't wait to see you there. And it's our pleasure uh, today to welcome uh, Pastor Bob Russell to the uh, podcast, Equipping You Podcast. Bob, uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So uh, uh, I just read your book, After 50 Years of Ministry. Uh, Matthew Sleeth, our uh, mutual friend, uh, put me onto that book and Loved every minute of that, of that, and uh, most of our questions will come out of the content of that book and hope our listeners will go and read uh, what uh, you've learned from those 50 years of ministry. But before we jump into the content of that, uh, tell us a bit about your background, how you came to faith in Christ, and uh, some leaders that were influential in your life and ministry uh, early on. Well, I, I tell people my testimony is kind of a boring testimony, but it's a preferred testimony. I, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. I, my my dad was not a preacher. He was a blue-collar worker. I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania, but my parents took us to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, I remember one time asking, do I have to go? That was the dumbest question I ever asked. <laughs> I only asked it one time. So it was only natural when I got to eight years old, that I accepted Christ as my Savior and was baptized. But uh, I didn't think about being a preacher. Uh, I was interested in sports in school and went to a little school. And if you went to our school, if you could stand up, you got to play football and basketball and baseball. <laughs> Sounds like Terry's school. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I happened to go through, however, at a time with some other very good and smart athletes, and we had a great basketball team. My freshman year, we were undefeated. So ever since our freshman year, we said, when we get to be seniors, we're going to win the Pennsylvania State Championship. Well, we got in the state tournament, and we were 14 points ahead in the last quarter. Our team fell apart. We got beat. And my life was over. My life goal was gone. And I was depressed. I had a sister, older sister, who was going to Cincinnati Bible College at the time, seven hours away. She said, you need to get away. Come down here and visit me. And I went down and visited her and had a great time. And I remember walking away from that school thinking, boy, that would be a, a good place to go to school, but it's a school for preachers. I'm not interested in being a preacher. <laughs> About three weeks later, I went uh, with my dad to Clarion College in Pennsylvania because the basketball coach had expressed some interest in me playing. And everything went wrong on that trip. I mean, everything. I didn't like their gym. I didn't like all the drinking that was going on. And I, on the way home, I was so troubled. And it finally just hit me. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I, I'm, I'm not supposed to go to Clarion to play basketball. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Cincinnati Bible College and study to be a preacher. Wow. And I came home and told my mother, and she burst out in tears because she had been praying for that for a long time. Well, the last several years, she praying that I would be a Christian. But I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, from that moment on, I never looked back. I, I went to Bible college. I graduated with a BA degree, started preaching at a little country church. And in uh, 1966, this new church that had just three years old, in Louisville, Kentucky, had not been able to find a preacher, and they decided that God was going to lead them to a younger man, and they found me. I was 22 years old, 
and asked me if I would come and be their preacher. They had 120 people. They were meeting in a basement of a house. Wow. I knew, I knew right then I was way out of my league. I mean, this was in a city. I grew up in the country milking cows. They had a lot of PhDs in this church, and I had a BA degree from Bible college. Uh, I, I was young. And so I really knew I had to apply myself. But one of the blessings of this church was they had great leadership. And these leaders, these leaders had gone to the president of our Bible college and said, give us the names of three or four guys who have recently graduated. We're going to hire a younger guy and we're going to make him successful. <laughs> and I always thought that ought to be the motto for every church wow. board. We're yeah. going to make our guy. And these guys really helped me and, and babied me along and this was a, when Jesus talked about some seed will fall on fertile soil, produce a hundredfold, this was fertile soil. You'd have to be an idiot to mess it up. And the church started, <laughs> the church started growing and it just uh, was way beyond whatever I asked or imagined. And I stayed at Southeast Church for 40 years and I retired in 2006. And since 2006, I've been conducting mentoring groups for preachers. And uh, in 14 years, I've done, I limit my retreats to eight guys because I want it to be interactive, but I've done 104 retreats. If you'd have told me I'd do 104 retreats for preachers, three and a half days long, I thought, no way, but it's kind of my sweet spot now. Mm -hmm. And I've really enjoyed that part of my ministry. Fantastic. Love it. You mentioned, uh, you know, that fear of going in being a young guy in a church of already 120 people. So talk, unpack that for us a bit, wrestling with fear. And then, Gaining confidence to overcome fear, but still staying humble. How does that all work together? Well, uh, part of my story growing up was I could go out and play basketball and football in front of hundreds of people, but I was terrified to read or to give speak in public. That's one of the reasons I didn't consider being a preacher, because I would hyperventilate and make a fool out of myself trying to get my breath. And so one of my fears was the fear of public speaking. Uh, but one, once I started, I was able to at least uh, breathe, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I didn't have that problem, and I overcame that problem by confronting it. But there's always that fear of, uh, of breaking down in front of people, and that motivates you to prepare, because the more you prepare, the more excited you get about what you're going to say, and you kind of lose yourself in what you're going to say. That was one of the fears I had to overcome. The other fear that I had to deal with was uh, fear of criticism. You know, so many preachers are people pleasers. We go into ministry because we like people and we want people to like us. And we just wilt under criticism. And so I, I, I have to battle that all the time. Uh, er, early on in our ministry, we, we had a million dollar fundraiser one Sunday and, uh, there was an article about it in, in uh, USA Today, and I got a call from the Phil Donahue show, and Phil Donahue was kind of the Bill Maher of that era, right, right. and he wanted me to come on his national television show and talk about raising big bucks for churches and warn me that there would be people who would be opposed to me, and that terrified me. I thought, oh, I don't want to get in front of of a national audience and embarrass myself and do damage to the kingdom of God and glad to be able to do that. And I went to our elders and told them the opportunity. And I told you about these guys said, we're going to make him successful. And they said, we don't think you ought to go. 
and you know, that's throwing your pearls before swine. Don't tell Phil Donahue. I can't <laughs> but, we don't talk much, Phil. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm sure you don't. Uh, <laughs> but I, I decided not to go. But I look back on that, and I think the Apostle Paul would have gone. And so years later, uh, we had a radio show here in Louisville that was kind of uh, 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 an antagonistic show on a secular station, 50,000 watt station, WHAS. And I was asked several times to come on that show because uh, of our radio program and the high profile that our church had become. And I went on that show a number of times with fear and trembling. But, you know, every time the Lord responded, when he talks in his word about when you're called before kings and those in authority, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will provide it. And I found out over the course of time that he is uh, greater than my fear. Amen. So uh, you mentioned criticism, and uh, we find out pretty quickly that leadership isn't for the faint of heart. So uh, uh, tell us about some of the criticism you received over the years, and how can we learn to cope with criticism? Yeah. Well, I think preachers today probably get more criticism than previous generations because uh, people are trained to be critics. <laughs> you got performance reviews all over the place and you got social media people think they're shallow if they're not critical so I, I really think preachers today have got to learn to live with criticism or you won't last very long uh i i was when i first started i thought i would be a dynamic preacher and i wasn't a very dynamic preacher so i remember a guy came to our church from lexington kentucky and he'd been under the tutelage of a preacher who was kind of the john hagay of that day he was real <laughs> dynamic he took me out to lunch and he said now my impression of bob russell is he, you never let yourself go in the pulpit if you just let yourself go i said i'm gone this is all i got <laughs> <laughs> my nature but I, I, I would be criticized for stealing sheep and uh, uh, people would come to our church from other denominations that were, I, frankly, uh, they, they quit preaching the word. Mm. And, and so I, I'd be criticized for stealing sheep. Uh, I'd be criticized for not being strong enough on some, uh, every denomination has its distinctives. And one of the, the distinctives of the Christian church is we put a lot of emphasis on baptism. Sometimes people accuse us of being baptismal regenerationists, but we're, we're not that. But I, I, I found out about grace and that I wanted to win people to Jesus and not our denominational distinctives. So there'd be some in our denomination that would accuse me of not being strong enough on baptism. And then the criticism came eventually from the world. And the world accused me of being too narrow and uh, bigoted and hate monger. And I write a blog every week. And if you are sensitive about criticism, try writing a blog. And I mean, the, uh, the, the responses you get from a, a blog are, 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 are many times nasty. I get a lot of positive comments, but there's some nasty comments too. Nobody ever gets to the point where criticism doesn't bother them. Mm. Uh, it's still, it's like a, a battering ram to the gut. Uh, you can take it, but it weakens you a little bit. But the good news is, as you get older and you experience more and more criticism, it doesn't bother you nearly as much. And I try to remember when it takes the wind out of my sails, I look back and remember that Jesus said, blessed are you 
when men persecute you or ridicule you or say things falsely, rejoice and be glad. And that's hard for me to rejoice and be glad. But uh, Jesus also said, beware, uh, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And you know, I got that woe off my back a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my, that's some good balance there. You know, I appreciate that very much. Uh, and I appreciate you, you know, mentioning earlier, your just those retreats and investing in preachers like mm -hmm. that. Uh, and certainly one of the things that's on my heart is for pastors to have great marriages. Uh, so for their joy with their wife, but also because I, you know, I believe it's a great model for the church. Uh, and so what would you suggest uh, to help pastors pursue strong marriages and in cooperation with that, then, of course, uh, guarding falling into sexual sin? Yeah. Well, Alan, that's, that's a, a great question. And one of the things I tell the younger preachers is one of the best things that you can do for your church is to model marriage, that you want the women Amen. in the church to go home saying, honey, I want you to treat me the way the preacher treats his wife. And I, I think if we, in this day when families are falling apart, if the church could be a place of strong marriages, it'd be so attractive you couldn't keep people away. And I, I think it begins with the preacher. And the preacher faces the same temptation he, temptations that other people do. Uh, but there are two or three things that are unique to ministry and one is, it's so easy for the preacher to leave the impression with his wife that the church is more important than she mm -hmm. is. Yeah. And the church becomes the mistress. Oh. And one of the best things we can do is to turn, turn it off when we come home and, and focus on our family. The other thing that is difficult for preachers is unrealistic expectations. Uh, People put the preacher on a pedestal and think he's better than he really is, but his wife sees him as, she, as he really is, and he knows that. And uh, it, it, it's, it's hard for, to be a church when everybody thinks you're God's gift to ministry, and then you're, you come home and your wife says, hey, uh, I need you to sweep the floor. And uh, all of a sudden, you come crashing down, and you have words, and she finds out that you you, you have bad thoughts, and, and you struggle with issues like everybody else. That's why it's so, to me, so important that the preacher be authentic in the pulpit, and that his kids and his wife sees he's the same guy at church that he is at home, and he, and he sheds those and feels uncomfortable around those people who put him on a pedestal. Mm. But I think one of, the, one of the best things is to be intentionally energetic when we come home. Mm. Uh, when I come home from talking to people all day, or I just want to lie on a couch and take a nap. And, and my wife gets the least amount of my energy, and she's the person I love the most. I, I think I tell in the book an experience I had uh, we'd been married for a few years, and my wife called me. I was home earlier, and she called me to tell me she was coming home late. And I answered the phone so late that the answering machine picked up and, and recorded my conversation. And about 10 minutes later, I saw, I saw the red light, and I said, I got a message. And I pushed it. I had to listen to my conversation with my mm -hmm. wife. And I couldn't get over how energetic 
her voice was and how dead mine was. Uh, the conversation was something like, Bob, you having a good day? Okay. What are you doing? Reading newspaper. Well, I just called to tell you I'm going to be a little late coming home. We got hub. Okay. Well, do you want me to get something to eat on the way back? You want to go out to eat? What do you want? doesn't matter. And when that conversation was over, I, I couldn't get over how little energy was in my response. And I just read a chapter. I can't remember the title. The, I read a chapter in a book called Are You Fun to Live With? <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm not fun to live with. If I die, I want Judy to shed at least one tear. You know, so I, I knew in my heart, I knew in my heart, if that had been a regular church member called me and said, Bob, you having a good day? Yeah, having a good day. How's yours going? What are you doing? Reading newspaper, reading this article about football. Be you know, well, don't hurry home. Just take your time. But my wife, the person who meant the most to me, she, I'm, I'm just grunt. And so I, I decided I'm going to be intentional about being more energetic at home. And, uh, I, 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 I took a while to get there, but I became a better husband. You know, we, we, we ought to continue to grow as Christians. And I, it's like we say, I want to be a better preacher when I'm 50 than I am 30. We ought to say, I want to be a better husband at 50 than I'm at 30. And uh, part of that is saying, okay, when I go home, uh, I'm going to be energetic. I've got a friend who uh, he, he, he pounds a nail. Every place he's lived, he pounds a nail in the door between the garage and the house. He said, people think that's to hang a hat. He said, no, that's where I hang all the junk that happened during the day. <laughs> and I go in and try to be fresh and, and energetic with my wife. Mm. Yeah, great that's advice, Bob. Great advice. So uh, one of the things that struck me as I read your book is that you trans transitioned well uh, when you came to uh, the time to step away from Southeast Christian. Uh, what are some signs for a pastor that he may, he may need to uh, move on to a new ministry assignment, that it's time to resign or time to retire? And what can a pastor do to make sure he leaves well and, and in a way that is helpful to the church? Well, first of all, I, I think pastors should take a church with the idea, I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. I don't, I don't think we ought to look at a church as a stepping stone or be aggressive in trying to climb the ladder of success. Bloom where you're planted. And if God wants you someplace else, I, I think he's going to make that so obvious you can't miss it. Especially in this era of, of uh, pandemic, preachers don't need to get discouraged and start looking elsewhere because everybody is uh, everybody's struggling right now. Mm. Uh, I think, though, if, if you're at a church and the attendance is declining for three years in a row with no explanation, it's not that... You know, the, everybody's moved out of town or the, uh, there's been a church split or something. There's no explanation. And you get the impression from your primary leaders that uh, y you need to go. I, I would even ask our elders, if it came to that, to, to have a, a kind of a private vote, an anonymous vote, whether you want me to go or stay. I, I would also think that w w we look at things like, Maybe you've made so many mistakes that uh, your leadership is no longer effective. You know, a, a ship in the harbor collects barnacles. And if a preacher who's been at one place for a long time may make so many mistakes that he's lost credibility with enough people that it may be time to go. And uh, I, I, I think it's important to ask friends who love you, uh, 
their opinion. At first, they're going to say, oh, no, don't go. But if they're honest with you, they'll, they'll sometimes tell you. And, and there is an opportunity to go someplace else that really excites you. I don't think we ought to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and ask the Lord to, to catch us. Don't <laughs> resign with no place to go out of anger. Amen. But you, you have an opportunity to go someplace else. And I, I'm, I'm giving you a whole list, but there are, there, are, there are a lot of things that say a preacher should go. It's a good time to move for your family. There are seasons in the life of a family when your kids are in seventh grade or your kids have just graduated or they're going into high school, other times that are bad. But there, there's this inner... There's this inner gnawing of the Holy Spirit that you're finished. And the Holy Spirit is prompting you, no matter how hard you try, you just can't get excited about where you are. That's time, I think, to think about leaving. But when you leave, take the high road. You'll never regret mm. not responding to criticism, not dumping. <laughs> I had a file called my last sermon file. <laughs> you could dump everything in his last sermon file. And before you leave, burn that last sermon file and uh, leave on a high note, encouraging the church. And uh, uh, you'll, you'll never, never regret that. Mm. That's a good word. Very good word. Uh, one of the things I was struck by uh, is the idea that m you say most pastors fail due to a lack of discipline rather than a lack of talent. I think it might be helpful for you to unpack that for our listeners. Yeah, uh, I, I see a lot of guys go into ministry and fail because not they're not they're good speakers and they get along well with people, but the the ministry is unique and there's not a lot of accountability. Uh, the Church board is—they're uh, not really trained for that, and they've got those guys have their own jobs. And so, when you start, uh, nobody's making you punch a time clock. Nobody's telling you where to spend your time. Even in Bible college or in seminary, we have a lot of theological training, but there's not much time management training. And, and so, there, there there are two things. One is that guys are inclined to respond to whatever is immediately in front of them, and they neglect that which is more important. And the second is that that which is most important gets pushed aside to a later time. For example, I talk with preachers, and it doesn't matter what size church, I believe that the most important task that you have is preaching a sermon on Sunday morning. If people are fed on Sunday morning, Everything else is kind of like getting the top button right on your vest. Uh, everything else kind of falls in place. But you can't you can't be a pastoral preacher and preach to the same people every week without spending considerable amount of time in study. You can get up and give a good sermon because you're a dynamic speaker. But if you're talking to the same people week after week after week, content matters more than than delivery. Yeah. And content only comes through study. James Earl Massey was a great preacher. He told his congregation, you give me time to spend alone with my God and my Bible, I'll guarantee you won't go home hungry or embarrassed. Mm. And uh, so the, the preaching and the study of the Word of God is primary. But what happens, guys who are gifted to preach push that aside for meet personal needs or pastoral needs or meetings. 
And pretty soon they're throwing together a sermon at the last minute. And you cannot week by week preach on three or four hours of, of sermon preparation. And let me, uh, let me tell you what happened to me in my first church that formed my study habits. I, I was preaching on the weekend to a little country church that had been a weekend church for 100 years. When I graduated, I said, I, I'd, I'd like to go full-time. I don't want to be a bivocational preacher. Will you consider hiring me full-time? And they had a two-hour elders meeting, and they finally decided they were paying me $50 a week to come out on the weekends. But if I would be there all week long, they'd give me $70 a week. I was worth $20 more. And so I accepted that offer. And the first Monday on the job, my wife left for work at 7.30 in the morning, and there I sat at the breakfast table. And I thought, what am I going to do with my time? I can go down to the drugstore, try to meet people. I can try to get up a golf game. I can watch TV. But I realized I may be establishing a discipline here that could stay with me for the rest of my life. And we had a little room we called the study. And I said, if I'm not in that room at 8 o'clock, I'm late. And so I went in at 8 o'clock. And I started working on a sermon. Now, this little country church wasn't used to having a preacher, so nobody called. Nobody stopped by. I was alone for four hours till noon. Now, when I was in Bible college, I could write a sermon in four hours, maybe three hours if the chapel speaker was good that, that, that week. <laughs> uh, but by Tuesday at noon, I had my sermon ready. I said, what am I going to do now? Well, I think I'll read another commentary. I'm going to write out this introduction word for word. I'm going to read write out this conclusion. I'm, I'm going to read this over five times. And I found my preaching got better and better. I was spending 20 hours on a sermon. Now, when I came to Southeast a year later, there was all kind of activity. I mean, the place was a buzz. But I told the secretary, every morning between eight and noon is my study time. If somebody calls, tell them I'll call them back unless it's emergency. Call back afternoon. Don't make any appointments for morning. And that was a discipline that stayed with me all throughout my ministry. And when I say I think guys fail for lack of discipline, that's what I'm talking about. It's knowing what your primary responsibility is and scheduling it rather than uh, allowing it to be pushed off to the side. And to know uh, what's secondary and what's, uh, what's third, what's fourth, to, to be able to discipline yourself to give attention to those things that are most important. Thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. Very helpful. So... Uh, you write in your book, Bob, the delegate in the area of your weakness and stay focused on your strength. Why do you think pastors struggle to do this? And why is it so important? And what did this look like in your ministry? I remember reading years ago that if uncontrolled, responsibility falls to the competent person until he submerges. If you <laughs> do something well, the reward is more work. <laughs> And the longer you're at a church, the more people you know, maybe the more people attend, the more responsibility you have. And if you don't learn to delegate, uh, then you're going to submerge. I, I learned this the hard way. I forgot a wedding. When I tell preachers I forgot a wedding, nobody ever says, well, I'll tell you, I did something worse than that. They'll say, oh, no, that's the worst thing you can do. And I was so embarrassed that I had forgotten this wedding. I thought of, I, I, don't, I don't belong in ministry, especially this ministry. It's way beyond me. So I, I realized I've got to change. I, I, it was a year I did 32 weddings. Wow. And that is a pitiful example of a people pleaser out of control. 
And so on Monday morning, I, I, I had to admit, look, I'm, I'm not a very good administrator, especially at administrating my own time. I have a hard time saying no. I want to please everybody. So on Monday, I went into my secretary's office and I put my calendar in front of her and I said, I want you to run my life. Need for an appointment, I'm going to say, yeah, I'd like to see you, but you have to call my secretary. She handles my life. And here are the times I'll see people. And she went a step further and said, you're seeing too many people. We're going to back that off. And she appointed a committee to determine what speaking games I would accept. And on Friday, Friday, she'd call my wife and tell me the responsibilities I had on Saturday when she wasn't in the office. And my wife would put a post-it note on the on the mirror to remind me what I had to do on Saturday. And I think I tell people that to say, I can't believe that God entrusted a church of 18,000 people to such a goof off. <laughs> but, but that's why. Because I recognized this is an area of my weakness. My strength is not administration. My strength is teaching and preaching the Bible. So the longer I'm at a church, the more attention I ought to give to preaching and teaching and the less to administration. So I started hiring people or welcoming the input of volunteers who were administratively gifted. I would delegate that to them and give them parameters and then trust them to follow through. Why so many preachers uh, have a hard time with that is we like being in charge. We like being in control, people complimenting us, and we're not sure it's going to be done right. When I told my secretary, look, next year, I'm going to do just 15, 15 weddings. I think it was. After that, channel them out to some of uh, the, the associate ministers. Well, it wasn't long after that, I found out, boy, I got more margin in my life. I, I've got a lot more freedom. But I was walking through the church building one Saturday morning and they were setting up for a wedding. And I say, this custodian, you got a wedding tonight? Yeah, we got a wedding. I said, who is it? And when he told me who it was, I was devastated because it was a family I'm really close to, their daughter. So on Monday morning, I went to my secretary and I said, I said, just 15 weddings next year. But when somebody like that asked for me, make an exception. She said, they didn't ask for you. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yes. you, can, you can laugh at that, but as a preacher, that hurts. Yeah. And you realize, hey, somebody else is getting the credit. Somebody else is closer to that family than I am. Somebody else is getting the basketball tickets. Somebody else is getting a raise. And if you don't get your ego out of it, you can't delegate. And it just, you, you have to learn to say, I don't have to be the center of attention. I'm going to stay in the area of my strengths and it's going to get better. And the area of my weakness, I'm going to channel to somebody else. Wise words. Yeah, I, I don't know, though. I don't know if I know any pastors that like to be in control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't go to church. New and unusual idea. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, it, man, in today's world of information everywhere, there's always new stuff coming our way, new fads, new methods. How do we, how can you help pastors discern being open to changing methods, but not just buying into every little ministry gimmick that comes along? How do you have that wisdom? Well, one of my favorite illustrations is that I went back home years ago before my parents died, and I kind of had a nostalgic trip, and I sat at the breakfast table one one night uh, before I went to bed, actually, and I ate a bowl of Wheaties. And it's what I used to do as a teenage boy every night before I went to bed. 
And it's, uh, this took me back because same taste and witty, same size box, mm-hmm. same slogan, Breakfast of Champions. But I noticed something. Mickey Mantle's picture wasn't on the front of the Wheaties box anymore. <laughs> I think it was Tiger Woods or somebody at the time. And th- the point is, General Mills knows they have a good product. They don't have to change the product, but they got to change the packaging. Yeah. And the same is true at the church. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel never changes, but we have to change the packaging. And uh, there's a difference between methodology and principle. So unless uh, there's so many ideas that are, like you say, so many new fads and ideas, and preachers are afraid if they don't get on the cutting edge, they're going to miss out on an opportunity to win thousands in their community or something, and they want to be on the cutting edge. They want to have a reputation of being hip. So we're really tempted to get swept up in the latest fad, and we're reinventing church every two or three years. Somebody has to be on the cutting edge, and if God has equipped you to be an innovator and a pioneer, God bless you. But I think a preacher, for the most part, is wise to let let other people be on the cutting edge. Let them make the mistakes and then learn from their lessons, because there's a difference between a fad and a trend. A fad is going to pass, and a, and a trend will change over time. And uh, we, we changed from years ago from using the King James Bible to using the NIV. We changed from using the hymnal to words on the screen. And we changed from Sunday night church to small groups. And we changed from uh, everybody meeting in one place to having satellite churches. So there, there are trends that you've got to be willing to be flexible and change. But don't do that too fast. Don't feel like you've got to be the one who who is leading your church on some new fad every time it, it comes up. Watch and learn from mistakes. My successor, Dave Stone, started uh, satellite churches, but he wasn't the first to do it, and he took his time. And Southeast Christian Church has some of the best satellite churches that I've seen, but nobody comes to Southeast for learning about satellite churches because they weren't cutting edge but they learn from the mistakes of others. There's an old saying, uh, Stephen Wright, the comedian, says, it's the early bird that catches the worm, but it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. (laughs) And and sometimes you let other people make mistakes. Take your time and be patient and observe, and then introduce new ideas, communicate well with the congregation, and say, we're going to experiment with something here. Mm -hmm. It's a good word. We're going to experiment, which tells the congregation that. This isn't something, this may not be permanent, but we're going to try something to see if it works. And you let, give us feedback and let us know. And I think you can save yourself a whole lot of hurt, especially with the older people, if you just communicate honestly and, and talk about an experiment. Good stuff, Bob. So uh, just got a couple minutes left here, but I want to catch this last question. Uh, at the end of your book, you talk about two key characteristics of a minister being faithfulness and joy. Uh, talk about those traits and, and why they're so important. Well, I, I grew up in a home of, of a mom and dad who were so faithful. I mean, every Sunday morning, every Sunday. My dad, I worked like 40 years at Talon Zipper. I don't know if he ever missed a day. And uh, so I, that's one of the reasons I stayed at one church for a long time, because faithfulness is important to me. Jesus said in the last days there would be, a, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many would grow cold. But those who remain faithful to the end, stand firm to the end, will be saved. And we go into ministry with high expectations. And we think 
we're going to build a healthy church and people are going to love us and we're going to be able to win thousands to Christ. And then reality hits. And uh, it, it is so easy to get discouraged that we need to remember God has not called us to be successful. He's called us to be obedient. I have a friend, Rick Ashley, who said a preacher is better off hitting four singles in a row than hitting one home run and striking out three Sundays. <laughs> and, and it's that consistency that makes for strong leadership over a period of time. Can you do it week in and week out? Can you be faithful on Monday morning after Easter? Everybody can get up for the big game, but can you get in there and put the same amount of effort the week after Easter? Sometimes the way we tell the Lord Jesus that we love him is when you wake up in the morning and the alarm's ringing and you don't feel like getting out of bed, you put your feet on the floor and you go about your duty regardless. And you're going to feel a whole lot better by being faithful than you will if, if you bail out. So I just think the Lord is going to uh, reward faithfulness. And I, I see so many people who will tell me, you know, 40 years ago, you said something and it, it planted a seed in my mind and it really changed my life. I had no idea what was happening. And, and you have no idea the, the amount of impact that your life and your preaching had. You can't evaluate it till eternity. So you just got to faithfully preach the word and have confidence in the, the word of God does not return empty. That seed okay. will grow. But joy, <laughs> that's really, to me, that's important. You look at the guys who are, are effective in ministry year in, year out. Almost always they have a spirit of joy. And it's contagious. You know, so many times the Lord reminds us to be joyful in all circumstances, especially in this era when there's so much discouragement. People need to see us be joyful. I, I tell preachers, you watch Joel Osteen when he preaches. <laughs> Don't necessarily listen to everything that he says, but watch his expression. He's got a joyful expression that is contagious. Once in a while, you can get in the pulpit and you can say, folks, I've just really had a rough week and I've been able to come up short and I don't feel well. You, you, you pray for me that the Holy Spirit lifts me up. And the congregation will rally to your cause, but not very often. <laughs> and most of the time, you better get into the pulpit, regardless of what's happened that week, and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah. And sometimes guys will say, well, that's hypocrisy. No, that's obedience. Jesus said, when you fast, don't let the world know that you're fasting. Wash your face, comb your hair, put on a cheerful countenance, and your Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Mm. And, you know, the mood of the leader is the mood of the team. If, if you want your congregation to be joyful, you've got to be joyful. Amen. And uh, they need to say, hey, this guy really loves preaching. This guy really loves the Lord. This guy is joyful regardless of circumstances, and it's contagious. Bob, uh, thanks so much for... Uh all you've shared with us today, nitty gritty, practical, helpful stuff for pastors and leaders who are uh, listening uh, to Equipping You podcast. And uh, just appreciate that, that you're one who is finishing well. You exude the faithfulness and joy uh, that you talk about. And uh, we have high respect and appreciation for you. And, and, and thanks so much for being a part of this podcast today. Amen. Well, thank you, Terry. Hey, by the way, uh, Matthew Sleeth just sent me a copy of a book he's written on suicide. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it is great. 
and yeah. it is so needed. I can't wait for that book to be printed because I think it's going to help so many people, especially help preachers who uh, need some practical advice on dealing with uh, suicidal people, depressed people in this era. Yeah, well, we uh, share that mutual friendship with uh, Matthew and, and uh, appreciate the stuff he writes and the insights that he has uh, into the Word of God. Very helpful. All right. Thanks so much, Bob. Appreciate it. Well, Alan, as we anticipated, that was a great uh, conversation with Bob Russell today. Sure was. Uh, what did you hear that you just resonated with and found to be really helpful? Well, I think I, first of all, just hearing from somebody that has, you know, finished well or is finishing yeah. well because he's still got a, obviously has a lot of life in him yeah uh, still but you know that alone was courage encouraging we keep hearing sad stories of other endings That's and right. uh to me that was just so encouraging to hear that um I, you know what the little tidbit of uh be intentionally energetic for your family i thought that was yeah. gold i mean it's so simple yeah. But I got to tell you, I've come home from work less than energetic at times. But if there was somebody from my church sitting there when I walked in the door, I would suddenly be energetic. So I can be if I want to be. I need that was just a good, simple piece of information. It was uh, a little bit convicting. (laughs) I appreciate that this man in his 70s is uh, choosing very intentionally to invest in uh, younger pastors mm. through his uh, retreats. And so I want to be like him when I grow up. Me too. Well, uh, I believe our listeners are going to love this episode. And when they do, what should they do, Alan? Well, what they should do is, as always, share it with somebody. Uh, it just pass along. Hey, here's, here's a good podcast episode of somebody who finished well, because that alone is going to uh, be an encouragement to somebody. Uh, with a lot of the people, you know, he mentions pastors being tired in this time. And so I think it's great to pass something along if somebody has finished well. And I would really encourage them to share it. You can send up a text, email, social media, share it wherever you want, but pass it on because uh, we want our pastor friends and church leader friends to be encouraged. Indeed we do. That's why we do this. And uh, we hope you're Benefited, bidding, benefiting from listening. And uh, we look forward to coming back to you next time. Meanwhile, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.